You're listening to Let's Talk Creation with Todd Wood and Paul Garner, the creation show where we learn, grow, and worship. Well, hey, we're back for another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I'm Paul Garner. And I'm Todd Wood. Uh, don't forget to like and share our episodes and uh, click that uh, subscribe button, hit the notification bell. Um, that would be a great favor to us. Um, it really helps to grow our audience. Uh, and uh, Tell your friends, of course. You know, keep telling your friends about the podcast. Uh, there are lots of people out there who haven't discovered us yet and would uh, really appreciate, I'm sure, the episode. So spread the word, spread the word. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be continuing one of our intermittent series. We've got several of them uh, going. Uh, yes. And this has been a while. Be, it's, it's, it's been a while. So, yeah. yeah it, it's been, I think, over a year yes. since we picked up one. This is our radiometric dating series. And people keep asking if we're gonna if we're gonna ever come back to this. Are you gonna ever finish that series? Yeah, yeah. eventually. <laughs> well, here yeah, it is. It's been on the agenda. So, so here it is. So, I thought because it's been such a long time since we last did uh, one of these episodes, we ought to just briefly recap. Mm -hmm. So, we began the series way back in episode 26 wow uh where we introduced radiometric dating the podcast was young in those yeah. days <laughs> so yeah so we introduced radiometric dating um we talked about the basic principles and assumptions that were involved uh and then in episode 35 we had a special guest we had dr ben clausen uh who is a nuclear physicist who came on to talk to us uh, dig a bit deeper into radiometric dating and tell us some things from his experience of actually radiometrically dating rocks. He's he's done work on granites. So uh, so that was episode 35. And then in episode 40, um, we talked about the RATE project. Uh, RATE stands for radioisotopes and the age of the Earth. And we sort of introduced this project. It was a creationist um, research program uh, that investigated the topic of radiometric dating from a number of different perspectives. And uh, many people will know that um, the RATE project proposed uh, this idea of accelerated nuclear decay, that there were episodes in the Earth's past, um, perhaps during creation week and during the flood, when there were um, episodes of fast nuclear decay um and then in episode 44 uh we kind of looked at some of the criticisms that had been made of the rape project and in particular we looked at an article that was published by randy isaac uh mm. of the american scientific affiliation and we kind of went through his article and we sort of responded a bit to some of the um criticisms that he he made of rape so so that's what we've done so far in this series. And until now, that's kind of where the, the series has um, has rested. But we're going to pick it up uh, today and uh, revisit the rate project. And I'm very pleased to say that today we've got a really special guest because we've got one of the actual rate scientists here with us, uh, Dr. Russ Humphreys. Uh, so, uh, Russ, it is really great to have you here. We're really pleased that you were able to come on the podcast. Well, I'm really pleased to broadcast about this. I feel that people don't understand it very well. So that's yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can we can shed some more light on, on these things. So yeah, so very, very welcome to to the, the program. 
Um, anyone, I think, who is remotely familiar with the world of creation research um, will know something about you and your research interests because you've made a number of um, quite important contributions over the years. And I thought perhaps for those who are a bit less initiated, it might be good just um, if you tell us a bit about your research career and maybe some of the areas of creation research that you've published in and some of the things that you've done. Okay, well, uh, a lot of my research is uh, uh, in the secular world. Uh, I worked for General Electric Company for seven years and then for Sandia National Laboratories for 22 years before I retired from them. And uh, uh, so a lot of my research was uh, actually very useful uh, for God to train me and I got hands-on experience in all sorts of fields of science. Uh, but my creation research uh, centered on uh, the age of the earth and the age of the universe, all sorts of things related to that. So uh, early on, I did a paper with Steve Austin uh, on the amount of sodium in the ocean. And uh, we pointed out that there was too much going in and not enough leaving for it to be um, in equilibrium. And so that sets limits on how old the ocean could be. And uh, those limits were much too young to suit uh, the uniformitarians. Then, let's see, uh, I did a lot of work over many decades on uh, planetary magnetic fields, the Earth's magnetic field. And uh, I made, uh, I did work on that. Uh, I made a theory about how God, uh, could have started up the magnetic fields of all the planets and the sun and the moon. Um, and, uh, and then I could work out from that theory what those magnetic fields should be today, how strong they should be. And uh, they, uh, they fit all the planets that had been visited so far, including the Earth. But uh, there were some planets that had not been visited, uh, Uranus and Neptune. Uh, or were still to be visited by a space probe. So uh, my, I said, I'll go out on a limb. Here's what my, my crazy theories should say uh, about their strength. Uh, and the evolutionists, uh, the uniformitarians, had uh, made a, a different prediction for the planet Uranus. And they, the two predictions were a factor of 100,000 apart. So uh, Voyager 2 went by Uranus and measured uh, just about exactly the field that I had predicted, or my theory had predicted. And uh, then uh, it went on to Neptune and measured the field that I had predicted. Uh, the other side, uh, when Neptune got passed, uh, they said, well, okay, uh, we were wrong about uh, Uranus, but uh, since Uranus and Neptune are sort of sister planets, then we predict that Neptune will also have a strong field like Uranus did. So, so uh, their side uh, got one right, you know, by <laughs> predicting rather late, <laughs> and I got two. And there's some, there's some other uh, uh, planets uh, that I had printed uh, predictions in the Creation Research Society Quarterly about uh, planet Mercury and Mars and. Uh, I had made predictions about all the planets in the solar system, and uh, a space probe uh, visited 
Mercury again. It had been visited a long time before, but it visited Mercury again and verified uh, the predictions I made for that planet. That was, I think the last one came true in 2012. So uh, I had a lot of fun and, uh, and it's fun to see uh, a theory actually work out and uh, be matched by what's in the real world. Let's yeah. see, uh, what else did I work on? I, I worked on uh, some other things. Of course, I worked on, uh, on uh, how did light get here from distant galaxies uh, and fit in with the idea of a young universe and a young world. And uh, I did a, a book on that called Starlight and Time. And since Starlight and Time, I've had a second cosmology. Uh, it was just published in Journal of Creation some years ago. And then I've now got a third one. And uh, each one is quite different from the predecessors, but there are some common elements to them. So uh, I published a third one in Journal of Creation last year. So, um, and all of that is designed to uh, fit in with the time problems we see. Uh, you know, how did, why does the universe look so old if it's so young? And how did light get here from the distant galaxies? So I've, I've tackled those problems. A uh, number of other creationists have uh, generated cosmologies, and uh, I think that's just great because the more there are, the more likely one of them is to be right. So uh, I'm just uh, pleased to see other creationists getting involved in that field. Hmm. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, and then, of course, there's the rate work. Hmm. Yeah, and that, and that of course is is what we'd uh, we'd like to talk about today. But I mean, you've 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 made so many contributions over the years. Um, I can remember reading those articles about planetary magnetism back in the um, mid to late eighties in the CRSQ, mm -hmm. and it was very gratifying to to see those predictions work out. And of course, you know, we've kind of followed the starlight and time research as well. Yeah. So, I, so that's can I can I jump in here? I of course. Back in, I, I think it was 93, maybe. Um, I actually went to my very first creation conference in Grand Rapids. It was a CRS meeting. And you were there um, presenting the first time I heard your Starlight and Time work on the White Hole cosmology. And I remember. Was, um, was that an ICC, an international conference? No, no. This was, a, this was a CRS board meeting. And they oh. were having a little public thing on the side and invited people who were in driving distance to come and hear it. Um, and I, yeah, it made a big impression on me because it was sort of one of the first times where I really felt like I heard something um, that was really sort of trying to tackle head on what the true history of the solar system and the universe might be. Um, yeah. That was a big deal. I was I was still I was a junior in college at that point. I was quite young, and so yeah, I've I've you appreciated were young and impressionable. Then. Yes, okay. and, and now you've learned better. So. Yeah, so I've appreciated your work for years. So I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, that's great. Well, we we would like to talk to you about the rate project, of course. Um, and as we said in the introduction, our viewers. Uh, at least if they've been following this series so far, um, 
already know a little bit about the rate project, but we would love to hear your own account um, of the rate project and particularly how you got involved in it. Um, so ju just tell us something about rate and, and what, what it was all about. Okay, uh, rate was a, if, if I'm going to show a picture of the rate people uh, on by, sure. if I can share my screen right now. There we go. There we go. You should see a picture of the seven rate scientists uh, and one Hebrew expert and three other guys that were helping us. Uh, uh -huh. This fellow here on the uh, left-hand bottom is John Baumgartner. And this fellow here, uh, let's see if I can, uh, that fellow there is Larry Vardaman. And he was the organizer and leader of the rate project and he's a very good project leader he know just how to crack the whip without making us so mad we quit doing it um, and uh, you know had to set goals and uh, raised funds and i believe it was larry that contacted me someone at icr contacted me about doing this and the two uh there were three creation organizations at the beginning that were sponsoring rate. One was uh, uh, the predecessor of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Science uh, Foundation, and mostly in Australia then. Uh, but uh, then uh, uh, one of them, they, they dropped out, and for a reason I'll explain in a moment. Uh, and then uh, the other two were Institute for Creation Research and the Creation Research Society. And uh, they provided a lot of support. So there is Humphreys right there with his hair a different color than it is now. <laughs> and next to me is the theoretical nuclear physicist, a creationist named Eugene Chapin. Uh, and he uh, did a lot of good theoretical work to. Uh, back up what we were learning. Uh, behind him is Dr. Don DeYoung, who is also a physicist, and he's also a very good uh, science writer. Uh, he, he's easily understandable at the popular level. And uh, so he wrote uh, what Larry called the translation of our technical book into something readable. So, uh, and next is Steve Austin right there in the middle. And he is a, what he calls himself, a soft rock geologist, uh, you know, sedimentary rocks and things like that. And here is Dr. Andrew Snelling. He was the contribution of uh, Creation Science Foundation in Australia, but he switched, uh, he changed jobs and moved to Institute for Creation Research uh, about the middle of the project. Uh, and then over on the right, Back row is Steve Boyd, and he is a very good Hebrew, Dr. Steve Boyd, uh, expert in Hebrew, and uh, was a professor at uh, Master's College. And uh, then next to him is Bill Host, uh, who is uh, a student of Steve Austin's uh, geology department. And then after he uh, graduated, uh, uh, went on their staff, and he helped a great deal with in particular, the project that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, and then there's Dr. Ken Cumming, a biologist and dean of the ICR Grudge School, and, uh, and Dr. John Morris, uh, who was, he was then president of the Institute for Creation Research. 
So um, those three guys from ICR and ICR in general was a great help to the project. So uh, let's see, what else should I say about that? Uh, well, I, how did you personally get involved in, in RATE and, and what, what was kind of the purpose of RATE? What did you set out to do? Oh, well, uh, the purpose was we were we felt that uh, uh, creationists had not really tackled uh, the problem of radioactive dating. Um, there is lots of evidence that a whole lot of nuclear decay has taken place on the Earth uh, in the 6,000 years it has existed. And, uh, and we felt that evidence wasn't being grappled with. So we um, were going to tackle uh, the issue head on rather than just trying to nitpick away at uh, things that weren't very important. So uh, that was the, the motive. We you know, really wanted to deal with the issue. Yeah. So what else should I say, Paul? Well, that no, that's that's very very helpful. Um, so you first convened in, was it nineteen ninety seven? Is that is that when the first yeah meeting? the first meeting was uh, out there at the Institute for Creation Research in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, and the project lasted uh, until the year two thousand and five when we published our second uh, book on on uh, radioisotopes in the age of the Earth, the Red Book. Yeah, and I've got the two books here. I've got the, the blue book the first, is the first one. Uh, right, but that was that was two thousand, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, um, in, in the in that the, book we were yeah, scoping okay. out uh, what we would do, and I made a, a prediction about the uh, the subjects we're going to talk about tonight in the blue book, and, and uh, what what we should get when we measure. So, uh, so okay, uh, what else? <laughs> Well, that's that's great. So what we'd like to to do in this episode in particular is kind of talk to you a bit more about your particular contribution to rate um, concerning um, helium diffusion, the helium research. Um, and as we were thinking about that, we thought, well, you know, maybe maybe a good way to kind of get into that topic is just to uh, recap for our viewers some of the things that we know about radioactive decay and in particular alpha decay which is very important when we're talking about the, the the helium work and what the relationship of that is to um to helium what what relationship alpha decay has to to the the helium problem so perhaps you could just sort of give us yeah just okay. set up the background to, to I, the problem. I like to give pictures so uh, i'll give my uh some some more uh View graphs, overhead transparencies I used to work with, but they're, they're now slides. Yeah. Uh, uh, these are zircons, a picture of zircons. Cool. Uh, and uh, zircons uh, uh, are zirconium silicate. They're not, they're not cubic zirconias. Those are uh, zircon zirconium oxide. So they're not the cubic little jewels that get sold in jewelry stores. Uh, but these are natural crystals, and these crystals are small. They're microscopic. You can barely see them uh, with a naked eye. Uh, and uh, uh, zircons are everywhere there is granite. And so they come from granitic rocks. And here I've got a picture 
of, uh, of a piece of uh, granodiorite. It's a, and you see the, the, the black crystals there. Those are uh, mica crystals uh, and uh, a particular bi uh, crystal called biotite. Mm. So, and if you look with a microscope at uh, biotite, you'll find these zircons. So I've got a picture of a, of a large zircon and they come in different colors uh, depending on the, you know, the impurities in them. Uh, but uh, so everywhere there's granite, there's zircons. And then uh, where did we get the zircons we looked at? Well, uh, Robert Gentry many years ago uh, got a, a set of borehole um, samples that Los Alamos had extracted. Uh, so Los Alamos extracted granite, and here I've got a picture of the actual uh, drilling rig that did the borehole three miles deep uh, wow. up in the mountains to the west of Los Alamos. And then uh, Oak Ridge, that is Robert Gentry, got some borehole samples and extracted zircons, and he found that there was a whole lot of helium still in those zircons, uh, which if they were really billions of years old, they should have lost all their helium. And so uh, we wanted to look closer at that and do some experiments. Uh, so uh, then Rate extracted these zircons. So there's the microscopic zircons coming from deep within the earth and uh, uh, the ones we looked at were about 60 germ lengths long. Uh, a germ is about one millionth of a meter, one micron, and these are 60 microns long on the average. Pretty little things. Uh, Dr. Gentry furnished that picture. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, so th this this site um, where the drilling was taking place, this was a geothermal project, is that right? On the right. edge that's of a right. volcanic caldera. And that's that's important. Uh, will be and turn out to be important uh, later. Uh, that means the rock is hot and dry, uh, and they wanted to extract the heat from that rock. So that's why they drilled this borehole back in 1974 when people were much more interested in uh, uh, geothermal heat than they now are. Uh, so, but uh, we are piggybacking on their research. Uh, so now you wanted uh, me to outline what happens uh, with radioactive decay. Uh, so these zircons, when they form, uh, grab as they're forming in the molten rock, they grab passing uranium atoms. They, they fit in chemically very nicely into the lattice. In place of a zirconium atom, you can have uh, a uranium atom. Uh, and so they, they extract, they grab uranium uh, from the passing molten rock as they're forming. And then at the same time, uh, they reject any passing lead atoms. The lead, well, I'll mention, is uh, a product of uranium decay. But we know from laboratory experiments that uh, the lead does not enter into the zirconium. It just doesn't fit. It's the wrong size atom, and it has the wrong number of chemical hooks on it. It doesn't fit 
so uh, so we we know from laboratory experiments that uh, zircons contain a lot of uranium and practically no lead. So let's move on. Uh, the uranium decays. Um, now uranium decays uh, by spitting out an alpha particle, and an alpha particle is two protons and two neutrons, which is the nucleus of a helium atom. And the helium atom goes out in the, in, into the zircon or beyond it and grabs two electrons and quickly becomes a helium atom. So uh, uranium, when it decays down to lead, uh, it, it emits, uh, when, it, when it's uranium-238, the most common variety of uranium, it becomes lead-206 and it emits eight helium atoms. So I'm just gonna run the animation there. You'll see the eight helium atoms emitted. Some of those go outside the zircons and some stay in it. And from the size of the zircons, we can, uh, we can establish how many escaped and how many uh, were still in the zircon uh, when the decay started. So, uh, so we know if we know how many lead 206 atoms there are down here at the bottom, uh, we know how many, we can calculate how many helium atoms were emitted. Uh, so uh, now uh, in this size zircons that we use, the 60 microns, uh, about half of them would stay. And uh, so then what happens to the helium after uh, it's emitted? Uh, would the helium stay in the zircons? Because, oh, another big point. I forgot to mention this. Uh, you see the tag there. Uh, if you just look at the uranium and the amount of lead and you use today's slow decay rates, from, uh, then you will get an age of about one and a half billion years for these zircons. And both Los Alamos and we got the same results, uh, about one and a half billion years. Uh, so that's one type of, of age and one type of dating technique. So is that clear enough about uh, how uh, Paul is, uh, how the yeah, sure. so, day occurred? So, so in effect, um, helium is produced as a kind of byproduct of that's the right. uranium to lead nuclear decay. Right. And then, through, through, and then through I guess the question of intermediate is what atoms and uh, at various stages along the way, right. they decay by alpha particles. So uh, you have eight helium atoms emitted to get down to lead 206. Yeah. And then I guess the next question is what happens to that helium um, once it's produced? What, what do we know about helium? Um, as oh. as an atom, how does I know it it's in balloons, and oh, balloons right. float up away oh. into the atmosphere. Is that anything <laughs> like what happens here? Uh, well, no. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a very good question. How? What would happen to that helium? Uh, would it stay in the zircon? And the answer is no. Helium diffuses out of the zircons, and diffusion is a fancy word for leak or spread out. Uh, so helium leaks out of the zircon. So here you see a picture of, uh, of a crystal and this big uh, yellow ball in here is 
a helium atom. And uh, the things uh, we know about the helium is that it's a very lightweight atom. And uh, that means it's fast moving. When, uh, when it gets hit by another atom, it moves fast. Uh, and then the third thing is that it's slippery. That is, it doesn't like to chemically attach to any other elements. So it's called a noble gas. Uh, I guess it's noble because it's snooty and it just doesn't associate with other elements. Uh, but it's slippery. So it can leak out uh, of the zircons. So uh, now this gives me and us a new way to date zircons. The helium leaks out. Uh, let's just see where the helium atoms go here. Oh, oh, that's a picture of the of the helium slipping from one piece of the crystal into the next cell, and uh, they go in all directions uh, randomly at different times. So, so let's see where the helium atom goes now. Uh, helium leaks into that surrounding black mica called biotite. Mica, you may remember, is this uh, flaky stuff. You can peel off thin flakes of it uh, uh, from the rock. Uh, and the black mica is biotite. And the helium leaks from the zircons into the biotite. So I'm just going to show some helium leakage here. The little yellow helium atoms are leaking out. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, the question is how much leaked and how much stayed in the zircons. So let's see if uh, if we can determine that. So the answer is that much helium is still in the zircons. Mm -hmm. So here you see, if you can see my cursor, uh, the depth of, in the borehole going from half a mile all the way down to two and a half miles. And here's the temperature uh, of the rock in the borehole. It's uh, 203 degrees. Los Alamos uh, measured these temperatures when they drilled the borehole. Uh, so that depth is 203 degrees, just a little below the boiling point of water at normal pressure. And then all the way at the bottom, it's 530 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about as hot as your, your oven will get when you're cooking a pizza. Okay, so now I'm at the right-hand column. I'm going to give the percentage of helium that we found still retained of, of all the helium that was emitted. That uh, this is the percentage that was still in the zircons. So I'm going to just start at the top and give you 80, 58, 42, 27, all the way down to 0.1 percent down. A, so you see, as it's as the rock is hotter and hotter, there's less and less of the helium that has been retained and more and more of it has been lost. And that's characteristic of the process we call diffusion. The hotter uh, the rock, the hotter the crystal, uh, the faster the leakage. Hmm. So uh, then knowing these things and thinking we knew that the uh, crystals were, you know, less than 6,000 years old, uh, we could use that data to estimate how fast the leaks were. So we predicted leak rate. So very crudely, this is not the actual 
math, the math is more complicated, but very crudely, the leak rate is about equal to the amount of helium lost divided by the time we think it's been losing us. So, uh, so we estimated this for two times. One is the time we thought, according to scripture, that, uh, that they had the leak, and that would be 6,000 years. But if, if uh, the crystals really were the one and a half billion years that the uranium to lead decay gave, then we should divide by one and a half billion. So we did that for both two models, in other words. Uh, and uh, we predicted this uh, well in advance of making some actual measurements about how the leak rates should be experimentally. So um, here's a graph. These are the predictions. Now, along the bottom, uh, we have temperature, 100 degrees on the bottom, all the way up to 500 degrees. And uh, diffusivity, which is uh, a measure of the leakage rate. Uh, and uh, the, there's a factor of one trillion between the top, the fast leak rates, and the bottom, the slow leak rates. So uh, we calculated those in 1998. And then I'm going to show you uh, uh, the first model, 6,000 years, uh, up, at, up here where the cursor is. And these little black numbers underneath are the percentages of helium retained, 58 all the way up at hotter temperatures to 0.1%. And these error bars are the uh, errors that, uh, you know, from our, the crudeness of our information, we could estimate uh, the 95% uh, confidence limits on, uh, on what we would get with another uh, uh, measurement. So, uh, so those are the uh, predicted leak rates. And, and then uh, the other model, one and a half billion years, uh, we have these leak rates, and they're much smaller uh, because uh, it's a much longer time we're dividing by. So you have to have smaller leak rates to have that much helium still left. So even between the closest points on this graph, uh, it's a factor of 100,000. So we went into print with these predictions. And we published the predictions in that blue book you showed, Paul, uh, in the year 2000, Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth, Volume 1. You with me so far? Am I, uh... Yeah, no, that, that's very good. So, yeah. That's Sorry. a big, I mean, I should, I'd, I'd like to point out here, that's a, that's a massive difference. This is not a... Yeah. margin of error kind of thing there there's no way <laughs> one of these is right and one of these is that not is right that is absolutely right that's right. a very good point to make todd uh, so we started measuring those diffusion rates in 2001 after we published it we were out on a limb published in print uh, so here are some details about the measurements we made we extracted zircons from the same borehole and the same depth. Uh, and at the left here, you see uh, uh, one, one piece of the core. Uh, and we got it from two depths. 
since John Baumgartner had worked at Los Alamos, he had uh, knew some people and knew how to get a hold of uh, the borehole samples. So he went to them and got these two samples. Uh, uh, now, uh, let's see, what's the other thing I should say? Oh, the size. Uh, well, let's, let's uh, go with how we dealt with it. Uh, you remember Bill Hosht from ICR who helped Steve and I. Uh, uh, Bill uh, crushed these samples, uh, and he didn't crush the little zircons within the samples because zircons are very hard. Uh, they're uh, almost as hard as diamond, but not quite. Uh, so uh, they retained their uh, their shape and their size and didn't get crushed, but all the other minerals around them got uh, put, uh, made into dust and powder. So uh, then Steve Austin extracted and separated out the, uh, the different minerals in it. And uh, the zircons, uh, zircons are very dense also. So you could separate the other minerals by floating them uh, in a sort of dense liquid. And uh, the ones that were left were on the bottom, which were the zircons. So uh, now the extracted zircons had a wide range of sizes uh, and the size matters. So uh, we sorted the zircons. We sent them to a laboratory in Canada and we asked for the same size that Dr. Gentry used, 50 to 75 microns. And here's an electron microscope of one zircon. It looks kind of dull. The shininess doesn't show up and the colors don't show up. Uh, but that's a typical zircon. Wow. And then uh, what they look like under their optical microscope that the person separating them by size used, uh, they look much prettier, nicely colored, uh, and, uh, and they, well, they're shiny, and I think they're pretty. So uh, that poor uh, worker separated a very large number of these zircons, 12. 1,200 zircons. That's a large number. Uh, usually, uh, experimenters in this field, um, in the geoscience world, uh, you know, will get a few dozen zircons at most. But uh, we didn't know any better, so we uh, we collected a large number of this particular size. So next, we sent them to an experimenter. And uh, he is an expert. An expert measured these helium diffusion rates. And here's a sample of his paper. The author is Kenneth Farley. And I think he's at uh, uh, Caltech. And, uh, and this is his apparatus he used to uh, measure the helium diffusion as he stepped up the temperature from this high-powered light bulb shining on the little packet. Uh, he's stepped up the temperature in steps and measured how much helium uh, went out to the mass spectrometer uh, and uh, at each step. And from that information, you can uh, figure the leakage rates at different temperatures. Ah. Now, Dr. Gentry didn't know we were creationists. We went through an intermediate uh, small mining company and we uh, asked the mining company not to volunteer the fact that we were creationists. So he didn't know uh, 
Dr. Farley didn't know, and he didn't ask who the sponsors were. Uh, but uh, uh, we didn't want him to know we were creationists, uh, which in retrospect turns out to be a good decision. He wouldn't have made the measurements. Uh, and he didn't know our goals. He, uh, being a uniformitarian, uh, he uh, didn't read our writings, and so he didn't know about the blue book where the prediction was made, and uh, he didn't know the sites. Now, we told him that uh, after uh, he did his experiment, we would tell him uh, the details about the geologic site so he could write his paper if he wanted. Uh, but the point is that this was a truly blind experiment. He didn't know what we wanted, and, uh, and we had no influence over the experiment, and it was done by an expert, uh, you know, so. And, and pre uh, yeah. presumably as well, um, you know, this requires some quite um, specialized equipment. So it kind of made sense to contract this work out rather than yes, try to exactly do it, for right. example, at ICR. And yeah. the other thing we wanted was we didn't, if we did it ourselves, uh, we didn't want uh, the uh, uniformitarian world to be able to say, well, those stupid creationists just botched the experiment. Right. So, yeah. uh, so now those 1,200 zircons allowed Dr. Farley to go to much lower temperatures. You know, he would start at a high temperature and work his way down in steps. Uh, and the amount of helium left leaked out at each step uh, becomes less and less. And if there's only a few dozen zircons, he has to stop at a temperature of uh, 300 or 400 degrees centigrade. Uh, but we had so many zircons that he could go lower in steps and still get enough helium uh, to make the measurement. And uh, that was an accident. I think that was God's providence that we gave him so many uh, zircons because it wound up that uh, uh, we are the only ones that have gone as low in temperature, namely to the temperatures in the in the in the formation. The, those formation temperatures are too low uh, for the experiments normally. But we are the only experiment that I know of uh, that went uh, to these temperatures. So now let's compare his results with the predictions. Here are the predictions again. And then up at the upper right, I'm going to start with some blue dots that represent his predictions. And you'll see whether they fit the 1.5 billion year model or the 6,000 year model. Boom. Wow. Uh, they fit very well. And uh, they fit the 6,000 year model very well. And uh, you see the little error bars around them. Uh, if we repeated the experiments, 95% uh, of the time, the dots would uh, stay within the error bars. So, and the error bars overlap very nicely. In fact, the dots overlap very nicely as far down as he could go in temperature. Uh, so, uh, I was, I was, Amazed, actually, when I yeah. first plotted these out on my home computer in Albuquerque, um, I have never seen an experiment uh, and a prediction uh, match so nicely. 
And then the other side, uh, the one and a half billion years is excluded by that factor of more than 100,000 that you pointed out, Todd. Yeah. I've, I've never seen um, quite so decisive uh, judgment made by experiment between two predictions. Wow. So, uh, of course, we were delighted at this. Uh, now, uh, next, uh, we can get a date out of all of this information. So the, the helium loss divided by the rates that Dr. Farley measured uh, give a helium leak age. Now, uh, here's the percentage helium retained again, and here's the leak rates that uh, he measured, and here are the ages that you get from that. Uh, now, it's not really as simple as dividing uh, helium loss by rate. The math is more complicated, but it boils down to essentially this. Okay, uh, now, uh, uh, Dr. Farley wasn't able to go to the temperature where we got the 58% retained, so we couldn't get a leak rate from him for that, but we did for uh, the higher temperature ones. And so here are the results, the ages that you just get. And, uh, you know, they're, you know, a few thousand years uh, difference between them. And that's because of the crudity of our error bars. So we, we didn't have a real precise measurement of several of the things, but uh, those are the ages. Uh, and the average, uh, 5,680 <laughs> years, give or take uh, 1,999 years. I didn't, I didn't make that up. It just came out that yeah. way. So that's easy to round off. <laughs> So I'll round both of those figures off, uh, 6,000 plus or minus 2,000 years. That seems like a familiar number to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, since it agree agrees with the face value, you know, no, no, uh, no gap date in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the critics really went bonkers over this, uh, especially the skeptics. Uh, and it just makes them look hard for loopholes. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the loopholes in a while. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's very, very helpful. And yeah, that's explained things, I think, very clearly. Um, I guess one of the questions, you know, that, that people are going to ask is, how do we then reconcile what appear to be two incompatible clocks? Because we've got we've got this helium clock that seems to be giving us an age of about six thousand years, but you mentioned earlier that the uranium lead radiometric method seems to be telling us that these zircons are one and a half billion years old. So we have these two clocks, and they're giving us different numbers. So how how do we how do we put that together? Okay, I'm very glad you asked that. Are you sure you haven't seen this slide before that I'm going to show? <laughs> <laughs> uh, two zircon clocks disagree by a factor of 250,000. So I've just illustrated the clocks by hourglasses. And here's the helium diffusion hourglass giving 6,000 years. So the top part of the uh, hourglass represents the zircon, and the, and the sand in the hourglass, both top and bottom, represents the helium. And it 
slowly leaks out uh, of the zircon and into the bottom, which uh, represents the biotide. So that's, that's one clock. And then here's our nuclear decay clock, uh, giving the one and a half billion years. And uh, here it's a little different. Uh, the whole hourglass is the zircon. And uh, the red sand is the uranium. And then it slowly drips uh, down through the neck of the hourglass and turns green and represents a lead atom. So uranium to lead gives us one and a half billion years. Now you asked how we explain that. I mean, they can't both be right. Uh, uh, there must be something wrong with uh, the assumptions or something that went into the uh, measurements. So here's what uh, we concluded in rate. Uh, we suggest that the nuclear decay rate changed in the past. So you can imagine a little uh, valve, a thumb valve at the neck of the hourglass, and uh, that got changed sometime in the past uh, from what it is now. Uh, so, uh, so that's why uh, uh, that clock would give uh, a slow, uh, long age because the rates uh, were different. Uh, so so uh, we think that uh, a lot of these rates changed uh, in the year of the Genesis flood, um, but there has there's probably another episode earlier than that where uh, there were high decay rates also. Yeah. Does that make sense, Paul? It does. So, so for the you know, for the benefit of our viewers, if I can sort of just try to summarize this. So so what you're really saying is that um, there's a lot of helium in, in these zircons because there was a lot of nuclear decay. There was one and a half billion years worth of nuclear decay to generate the helium. But that episode of decay can only have been in the relatively recent past because there hasn't been time for the helium to leak out of the zircons and escape. Yeah, yeah the, the bottom line is that uh, somehow we got over a billion years worth of nuclear decay yeah. occurring within the past 6,000 years. And the only way uh, I can explain that or the rate people can is uh, that uh, there was a speed up of decay sometime in the past so yeah yeah that that's very helpful so um yeah so this this is great i i, I was i was so impressed you know when, when i saw the results of uh these helium diffusion experiments when i kind of read the results of of this particular rate project uh it was very impressive to see to see uh the the measured uh diffusion rates kind of falling out on that predicted line uh it was yeah so that that was quite stunning really um now of course the critics uh ha have yeah the, your work has not gone unnoticed Let, let's put it that way so <laughs> the the critics have um have tried to do their best as you said to find um some kind of explanation some kind of loophole that will explain the helium work because they want to say that the one point five billion year date is the correct one so there's got to be something wrong with the yeah. the, the the helium right. uh diffusion it's maybe the helium diffusion rates were much 
lower in the past than than we measure today or something like that so just talk to us a bit about some of the responses that you've had some of the objections that have been raised from the critics could you okay um there's an article on creation.com uh, a creation ministries international site uh where i summarized a lot of the helium uh critics and their uh their uh, questions so Here's a picture of the website, uh, and let's see, what do you search for? You search for helium critics up there in the search engine. It, so you go to creation.com, search for helium critics, and uh, this is the first uh, article that will pop up. Uh, the helium evidence for a young world continues to confound critics. Uh, so uh, I think uh, this article appeared in 2008, uh, but uh, all of the critics had made their points, in, including the uh, the one that's still hanging on, Dr. Gary Loeschel, they had made their main point by that time. Uh, but there's been, uh, you know, the, the secular world has not been unconscious of this, and a lot of articles measuring uh, uh, measuring the rate of helium decay uh, in zircons uh, have popped up in different kind of studies. A lot of interesting wrinkles uh, to the decay, but uh, it, in the two decades we've had since the results appeared, there's no experimental or observational contradiction. For some reason, uh, they have not made the effort to measure. Uh, things at low temperatures uh, they have by low i mean you know below 300 degrees centigrade uh, which was where the formation is it was between 100 and 300 degrees centigrade so but they have not done this and one maybe one reason is it's a lot of work to get enough uh, crystals to go to the low temperatures or maybe there's some other reason so so, yeah. Uh, shall I? Uh, where where should we go from this? Well, um, you mentioned there Gary Loeschelt, um, and I, I know you've had some sort of backwards and forwards with him in the pages of the Journal of Creation. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the, as I understand it, sort of the one of the objections he had is uh, concerns the the thermal history of the location the the site where the samples were taken um so i uh, if i've got this right he's he's arguing that the temperatures at that location were much lower in the past and therefore the helium diffusion rates would have been much lower um perhaps you could just sort of talk a bit about that and um you know about the thermal history of the fenton hill location all right, I'll show a slide here that uh, kind of summarizes his objections. Uh, this is the low shelf loophole. <laughs> uh, uh, he's the last of the critics. The others seem to have gone away for some reason. Uh, first, he re ignores rates data at low temperatures. And then secondly, uh, he, he ignores uh, the existence of a ice age volcano blew up, according to the secular 
measurements of, of dating. Uh, the volcano blew up about a million years ago. Uh, and uh, that borehole you saw is perched right on the rim of the of that old uh, that volcano that blew up in the ice age. So here uh, we see a plot of temperature on, on the bottom. This is zero degrees C centigrade now, up to 500 degrees C. And the uh, black dots are the uh, are the measurements, and the squares were the predictions we made from the amount of helium that was lost in 6,000 years. And the black dots and the squares line up nice. But Gary, if I may call him by his first name, I've had uh, two years worth of uh, talking with him, both face to face and uh, by email. And uh, I was trying to understand his theory. So I'm going to try to give the uh, the best uh, best view of it I can. Uh, Gary thinks that all these low temperature points, the black dots and the squares, uh, are just a fluke, uh, and uh, the the real diffusion rates in the formation uh, continued down this straight line on down to very low temperatures. And then if you just take the uh, the the loss rates and slide them over from from present day temperatures on down to the temperatures he wants. Uh, he has a lot of those uh, uh, points being uh, between uh, uh, 150 and maybe a little less than 100 degrees C. And uh, if you slid the points over to, uh, to the high temperatures uh, that are there today, but drop these predictions down to the, the level you need to keep the helium in them, um, there's over 100 million, a factor of 100 million between those, those two. So he wants to slide these points over, and he wants to ignore uh, the low temperature points we measured. Uh, now, uh, so if either one of these things is absent, his, his theory won't work. So he's got to have both uh, lower temperatures in the formation, and he has to have his theory that causes us to ignore or causes him to ignore uh, those low temperature measurements. You know, just one of those two factors will not work. They're, they're not enough. So now let me see if I can explain why he thinks we should ignore uh, the low temperature measurements that we made. He thinks uh, and I think he's actually right, but some of his assumptions in it are not. But, uh, he thinks that there are two domains within the crystal. One is a one is a domain that really retains uh, the helium very well, and you know, so the leak rates out of that domain you could imagine is just two different parts of the crystal, but they actually overlap. Uh, so, but. Uh, he's imagining uh, that that high temperature domain. Uh, uh, what am I going to say about that? Uh, leaks helium very slowly, so he calls that the um, the uh, low, the high retention uh, domain. And then 
in the in the in the uh, in the actual formation, there's a low temperature, a low uh, low retention domain, um, and uh, so he has that domain not being emptied out uh, in the long time that he thinks it was there because it was hindered by the biotite surrounding it. And so, uh, so when we took the crystals out, the low uh, retention domain still had some helium in it. And then in the, in the lab where there's no biotite, just a vacuum, um, that low retention domain uh, would leak and provide those, these measurements. Uh, that we got at low temperatures, but he's saying that in in the uh, in, in the formation, uh, these this leakage wouldn't happen. So uh, that's essentially. So he's uh, tried to publish that theory uh, and hasn't been successful. But uh, a couple of the uh, uh, long age uh, sites uh, such as Hugh Ross and Gary, uh, who's the other, uh, Randy Isaacs, uh, the American Scientific Affiliation, they published uh, his theory without peer review, uh, but it's on there. Uh, and that article I sh showed uh, will give some of his references for that. So, yeah. so uh, how do I answer that? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I don't think he's, uh, he's actually kind of invented his own temperature history and it, it events, it really ignores what Los Alamos calculated the heating of that formation would be from the volcano. Uh, he, I don't know exactly how it gets around that, but, uh, the nearby volcano should have heated, uh, that formation and supplied most of the heat that we now measure. And if if it was that hot, then it would, you know, he needs uh, low temperatures persisting up until about 10 or 20,000 years ago. Uh, but the, the volcano was supposed to be a million years ago and uh, it should have heated the formation up. Now we think that the, uh, that formation has been about at the same temperature for thousands of years. And uh, it's in hot, dry uh, uh, granite-like stuff. And the, uh, the, the heat flow rates in dry rock like that are very slow. So if, the heat, uh, if you just extrapolate backwards in time from today's temperature and assume that it was cooler, uh, you don't get very very low by uh, five thousand years ago. So, in other words, I I don't think this theory works. But. Yeah, yeah. So it looks as if you know the the rate um, helium work is has been quite resilient. Uh, you know, in the face of the critical objections. So, uh, I I guess uh, we probably haven't. Sort of heard the last of this. There's, there's probably um, this discussion is going to go on. What well, one thing I did want to just briefly talk about before we close out, and we, we we're getting very close now, I think, to the end of the episode. Um, are there plans to do further research, creationist research in this area? Um, if yes. so, you know what what might that involve? 
they're not they're out of the planning stage and there's an effort going on now i'm not uh, directly involved in it uh, but there's an effort going on to take some other sites and take uh, the large amounts of helium uh, in those sites and make uh, similar measurements uh, so uh, we need to find somebody because Dr. Farley doesn't want to do it, <laughs> uh, we need to find some lab that's uh, that can do the measurements for us. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so the, I have a couple of other uh, the loopholes that the earlier critics uh, uh, on my uh, slides. If you want to see those, uh, yeah, uh, sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. Uh, this is the Ross loophole. Hugh Ross said on a radio program uh, uh, that there was a whole lot of helium on the outside of the zircons in the biotite, a huge amount actually, and it leaked into the zircons. But the data uh, say no, uh, uh, diffusion occurs from high concentrations going to low concentrations. And the uh, amount in the biotite, uh, there's helium in the zircon and there's helium in the biotite. And the concentrations in the zircon uh, about uh, at one particular depth uh, uh, were about 800,000 trillion atoms per cubic centimeter. And in the biotite from that same depth, there were only 4,000 trillion per cc. So the uh, the leakage would go from the zircon to the biotite like this. So the helium is diffusing out of the zircons, not into it. So that was a rough loophole. Let's see. Oh, oh and by the way, yes, uh, something kind of interesting. If you the, the biotite flakes are much larger and if you take that low concentration in the biotite and uh, multiply it by the larger volume, you get about uh, the same amount that has been lost from the zircons. You find that in in the zircons. I mean, I'm sorry, in the biotite. So the the total the total total helium in the biotite is about equal to the helium we know was lost from the zircon. So we know where the, the helium went. Uh, so uh, a fellow named Henke uh, said that the, uh, you know, down in the borehole, the pressures were higher and that stopped the helium from leaking out of the zircon. Uh, it turns out that it doesn't matter according to measurements. And the reason is that the zircons are very hard and the pressure can't compress them, uh, these pressures in, in the borehole. So uh, now uh, the biotite is compressible and uh, we accounted for, uh, for the compression, the pressure in the biotite. So there's more at that creation.com article uh, that I cited. So let's see. Oh, a uh, really sophisticated one, I thought, uh, was by Hugh Ross's uh, uh, expert on radio, radioisotope dating, Roger Weems, who is a geoscientist at Los Alamos uh, and uh, studies that. And he suggested, well, you know, maybe the zircon started off 
with uh, no radiation damage and the, the uranium in them made radiation damage and that made leaks. Uh, turns out it doesn't really matter. Uh, so uh, suppose that the zircons were very pure at first and that only radiation defects amount to anything. So I'm gonna, I think, run a simulation showing the radiation popping up uh, in the zircon, making little holes, little tunnels in it. Uh, uh, if that happens, it only changes the results by a factor of two. You know, sort of like, you know, the whatever the age of the zircons is, the average age uh, of all those uh, defects is half of that. So that's far short of the 100,000, factor of 100,000 that uh, yeah. Roger needs to explain that. So the last loophole uh, I'm going to talk about is an early Ross loophole in an earlier radio program. He said something like, Helium is slippery, you know, so you can't you can't rely upon it. <laughs> but we want it to be slippery. That's what we want. And we want helium to slip down from the top <laughs> to the bottom in the hourglass. So uh, other than that, helium's just fine for measuring the age of the zircons. So that's all I had to say, uh, but maybe you've got some more things to add, uh, Paul. Do you want to ask about some more stuff? Well, no, I, I think that's covered the, the main sort of loopholes, certainly, that I've I've sort of come across. Um, yeah, I, I understand um, you also published an article uh, about uh, argon diffusion based on some data from the, the mid-80s, which sort of confirmed the helium results as well. I'm glad you asked about that. I'd forgotten them to even mention that. Uh, the same borehole, uh, rocks from the same borehole, uh, and granite from the same borehole has a, a common mineral called feldspar. It's a sort of shiny, uh, milky white uh, uh, mineral. And uh, that has uh, potassium in it. And the radioactive potassium in it decays to argon. And uh, some loss out, some researchers using uh, those data from that borehole uh, calculated that uh, the, uh, the temperature must have been very low before about five or 6,000 years ago because there was essentially no loss of argon. So the amount of argon that was lost is consistent with uh, just 5,000 years or so uh, uh, of, uh, of, of argon loss out of the feldspar uh, in that borehole. So, uh, so they're essentially you know, making the temperature very low before 5,000 years ago, uh, just arbitrarily. And uh, so that's pretty much the same thing as saying the feldspar didn't exist before about 5,000 years ago. So, so yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, thank you so much uh, for, you know, explaining all of that. Um, for our viewers and listeners, we will definitely put links in our show notes to, um, 
to all of the relevant papers that have been referred to uh, during this episode, so you can check those out. And I, I, I'd also say to anyone who is listening to this in audio, um, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this on a podcast streaming platform rather than on YouTube, come to the YouTube channel and uh, watch it in video and you'll see all of the fantastic slides as well. So, so don't miss out on doing that. Come and subscribe on YouTube as well. Uh, Russ, it's been absolutely great to have you. We're so glad that you could come and join us today. And uh, that, that's been fantastic. And uh, Todd, I don't know what we've got coming up um, uh, next time. As, as we often say at the end of these episodes, it's, it's a magical mystery tour. We're not quite sure what's happening next, but um, I'm sure it's going to be uh, a lot of fun anyway. So we will see all you guys uh, in a couple of weeks' time. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Creation. For more information, visit us at letstalkcreation.org, where you'll find an archive of past episodes in all our show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or make a suggestion, you can find us on all the major social media platforms. Let's Talk Creation is brought to you in the U.S. by Core Academy of Science and in the U.K. by Biblical Creation Trust. As a listener-supported ministry, we are grateful for all of your financial support. Find out how you can make a contribution at our website, letstalkcreation.org. Also remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, and see you next time.